we start a series this evening uh, that we have entitled Question Everything, and it is a series that has come out of another series that we just finished uh, on missional living, in which we talked about what it looks like for Christians to lovingly engage uh, the people in their life with the gospel by living it out, by talking about it, um, and engaging in ways that will be um, important and relevant for uh, the people around them. And so hopefully some of you are here tonight uh, and you are not believers. You are not followers of Jesus at all. And uh, if that is you, I welcome you. I'm thankful that you are here. Thankful that you'd be willing to sit here and to engage in this conversation. And so uh, I, I want you to know that the next three weeks are specifically for you. Okay, so the uh, next three weeks, I'm going to be talking about objections to Christianity that has come from maybe many of you. And so uh, what we did over the last six weeks is we asked our people to ask their non-believing friends, what were some of their main objections to Christianity, the things that were stumbling blocks to faith for them, and we got quite a list. We took the top 12 of those, and we are going to address them. The top three I will address in the next three weeks' messages. Uh, the other nine we are going to address on the blog. So at praxischurch.com slash blogs, uh, we will address for the next three weeks, three times a week, the uh, numbers 4 through 12, basically the top objections to Christianity. And so that's a great place to talk through that, push back on some of those ideas, and just have dialogue on those. Um, I will also post my notes and some thoughts that I have about these next three messages on there, and we'll be on there to, uh, to interact with you as well. So again, thank you for being here. Welcome. We're excited to have you. Uh, tonight, we are going to talk about the Bible. Uh, the number one objection that we had was uh, that the Bible is not trustworthy, and that is why people have problems with faith. And I, and I think this is the perfect one to start with because, as our scripture reader read, Christians believe, as Second Timothy 3.16 says, that all scripture is breathed out by God. The Bible is the foundation of the Christian faith. So if the Christian faith is founded on a document that's not trustworthy, the Christian faith itself is not trustworthy. And so laying the foundation of why we trust the Bible and believe that it is the breathed out word of God is incredibly important and a fantastic place to start. Um, the Bible itself is probably, I think arguably, the um, most influential document in all of human history. It has been translated into hundreds of languages. It has survived thousands of years. It has influenced millions, tens of millions of people throughout the world. And, and so it is important for us to deal with this. You can reject the Bible. You can uh, not believe the Bible. You can think it's legend or fairy tale. You can dismiss it as outdated. But the one thing you cannot do if you want to be intellectually honest is ignore it. It is far too uh, influential. It has, it has touched far too many spheres of our world for you to simply ignore the Bible. It would just be intellectually dishonest of you to do so. And so um, over the last several weeks, I've compiled what I believe are five important objections to the Bible or problems with the Bible arguments that I have heard 
personally or have found um, through a, a lot of research. And uh, this week, this sermon has been the product of more research than any other probably five sermons combined that I've ever done. Um, but two books that I want to highlight in particular that I leaned heavily upon and believe that they would be uh, of, of use to you. The first is a book called Evidence That Demands a Verdict by Josh McDowell. It is somewhat of an older book, uh, probably 15, 20 years old, uh, but it is excellent, a, a very thorough uh, a rendering of the scriptures. Um, Josh McDowell was a, a known atheist who set out to disprove Christianity and in the process became saved and has now is now one of the great uh, Christian apologists. And uh, the second book is called The Reason for God and is written by a, a, a guy named Tim Keller who is a pastor of Redeemer Presbyterian Church in Manhattan uh, and has uh, spoken widely and is probably one of the most influential uh, thinkers in my life, specifically over the last year, and the reason for God. And I would encourage you, whether you are a Christian or a non-Christian, it is stimulating reading, and he is a, a brilliant writer. So I encourage you. Those are two books that I have to give acknowledgement to because they were uh, very helpful throughout this process. But I want to identify five objections, and, and i got to apologize from the outset. There is no way that I can give a fair and complete treatment to all five of these issues. As you will see them in a moment, they are weighty and broad, and this could probably be a 10-week series just on this issue of trusting the Bible. And so, um, unfortunately, I only have the next three hours to deal with these issues. (laughs) Nervous laughter. Uh, really only the next 45 minutes or so to deal with these issues. And so um, I I ask for your grace uh, in that, knowing that on all of these issues, I will not be able to give a complete and deep uh, and broad answer. And so it's going to be kind of a 50,000-foot look at each of these five issues. And so if you think to yourself, well, he didn't really give a thorough answer, you're right, okay, and just live with it. All right, so five main objections. The first... The Bible has been changed over time, so there is no way that we can trust what we have today. Number two, the Bible is full of legend that was written to give the disciples religious influence. Number three, the books of the Bible individually were chosen hundreds of years after Jesus died and were chosen to gain power. Number four, the Bible was written by mere men who had no intention of writing sacred scripture. And number five, the Bible's message is outdated morally and culturally. It is oppressive to women, slaves, and those with minority lifestyles. We are going to try to attempt to hit all five of those tonight. And so, again, I apologize that I won't do any of it well. So, number one, the Bible has changed over time so it cannot be trusted. The argument goes like this. The Bible was written thousands of years ago and has been copied so many times, transmitted so many times over the years, and in various different languages, in various different cultures, on various different continents, there is no way that the Bible that we hold in our hands today, that we buy at Borders or Barnes & Noble, could possibly reflect what was written so many thousands of years ago. And so just because of that alone, we cannot trust this Bible. And and i got to say, this is uh, a winsome argument. And it is an important one to to address because um, it is very likely that a book that has crossed thousands of years and crossed oceans and languages, many of whom are now extinct, 
uh, could possibly be accurate to those original writings. So um, I, I want to perhaps show you a couple things about that transmission process. Transmission is the, the big word for copying the Bible or copying any ancient manuscript. The, about that process of transmission, about the amount and quality of the copies of the Bible that we have today. So starting with transmission. Both the Old and New Testament documents were copied with excruciating attention to detail. When an entire scroll had been copied by hand, one letter at a time, if one mistake was made, the scroll was destroyed. In addition, the Jewish copies of the Hebrew Scriptures adhered to detailed requirements in their copying, in their transmission process. So here are some of those some of those requirements. Number one, each copy had to be made on a brand new writing surface and had to be prepared in a specific way. So most of the Old Testament was written on animal skins that had been bleached and prepared, um, flattened so that they could be used for writing. Much of the New Testament was written on papyri. And so that is what we have today is these um, animal skins and papyri that, that reflect those original copies. And so every time a new page was written, a new animal skin would have to be prepared it would go through a lengthy process, which, which was really a religious process of purification for the document itself, purification for the scribes that would do the process. Number two, each copy had to be written in a certain number of columns of 33 letters width with a certain number of lines in each column. So before they would even begin to write... They would get this parchment, they would lay it on the desk, and they would take a a, a straight edge and draw lines before they would ever begin because every column could only be 33 characters wide. There was a certain amount of lines north and south that it could be. They had very clear parameters for each page of the Scripture. Number three, each copy had to be written in a certain color and quality of ink. Number four, not even the tiniest letter could be written from memory. As one would glance at the word to, T-O, and write the letters T and O before glancing back at the original. But every letter was copied singly from the original. So, um, in in other words, if they were starting in Genesis 1-1 and were to write, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, instead of what we might do and go, says in the beginning, all right, in the beginning. We can remember that. No, no, no. They would go, I, I. Yep, that's an I. N, N, yep, that's an N. Letter by letter by letter by letter, making sure that each letter was right before going back to the page to write the next letter. Number five, no letter could connect or overlap another letter. The distance between each letter was measured by a single hair or thread. So not only would they go I, I, N, N, but they would go I, I, thread, N, N, Thread, T, every single letter. Number six, every letter of every page and book was counted and compared against the original. The number of times each letter of the alphabet occurred in a book was counted and compared against the original. The middle letter of the Pentateuch, which is the first five books of your Old Testament, and the middle letter of the entire Hebrew Bible were computed and indicated in the text. If one of these calculations were incorrect... They would discard that copy. 
So, after going I, I, N, N, thread, thread, the whole deal, all the way through a book of the Bible, you're talking Genesis is 50 chapters long. After going all the way through, then they would count the words, match it to the original. They would count the letters, match it to the original. Count the number of times a particular letter was used in the original and match it with the document. They would count to the middle of the original, find that middle letter, go to their copy, find the middle letter. If any of those things didn't match up, they would cry. (laughs) And then they would take the scroll, go out into the backyard, dig a hole, put the scroll in, cover it up, go back to the desk and start over. These guys cared deeply about the scriptures. This was not merely a job that they had to transmit ancient manuscripts. These were devoutly religious men who cared deeply for the process of transmitting Scripture. The Masoretes in particular were a group of people who through uh, from 8500 to about 8950 were primarily in charge of transmitting Scripture. They calculated everything that could be calculated. They numbered the verses, the words, and letters of every book. They calculated the middle word and middle letter of every paragraph, of every page, of every book they had. These were very, very precise people. These are the type of guys you want doing your taxes, but not to be friends with. Right? Okay. These were very precise men who had a very precise process that it was more than a job. It was religious devotion to make sure that these documents were transcribed correctly. And so this would happen all over the world. They would start with the original manuscript and someone would make a copy of it and they would send that copy over here and then they would take the original manuscript and make another copy and copies and copies. And so then that first generation copy would go to somebody else who would get this copy and they would make copies of the copy and then there were copies of the copies of the copy and then there were copies of the copies of the copies of the copy and it just goes on and on and on and on and on. And so we've got all of these copies but we have none of the original manuscripts. This seems like it would be a problem, wouldn't it? We cannot say with 100% certainty that the Bibles we have today reflect the original manuscripts because we don't have the original manuscripts. But we have several copies. So here's how this would go down. Um, There is um, a test given to all ancient manuscripts called the bibliographical text. And it is a test used to determine the historical accuracy and trustworthiness of an ancient manuscript. And all ancient manuscripts will go through this process and they will be assigned a, a number, a percentage number to say it is accurate within X percentage. And Homer's Iliad is, is widely considered the greatest, most trustworthy document from all of antiquity. Homer's Iliad. There are the most copies that are the most similar, that is the closest from the earliest copy that we have to the original manuscript. Okay, In fact, there are many copies of, of many original manuscripts. In fact, throw that table up there. As you can see, we see the authors on the left, Homer, Caesar, Plato, Aristotle, Herodotus. When they were written, the earliest copy that we have today, the time span in between, and the number of copies. As I said, Homer's Iliad is widely considered the best. And so it was written originally by Homer in 900 B.C. The earliest copy that we have was is from 400 B.C., which is a time span of 500 years. We have 643 copies of Homer's Iliad, 
which are copies of the copies of the copies of the copies. We have 643 total copies in various ancient languages of Homer's Iliad. And so what they do is lay all those 643 copies aside digitally now. They lay them all by side by side and check them word by word by word by word to come up with the percentage accuracy of the book. And so even though we don't have an original copy of Homer's Iliad, by laying out 643 copies, you can get a pretty darn good idea if the percentage is high and there are very few variations. Now, I'm sure you've already skipped down to the bottom and seen that the New Testament really blows them all away. The original, uh, the original manuscripts were written between 50 and 90 AD. Earliest copies of the New Testament we have are from 130 AD, which is a span of 40 to 100 years, and we have more than 20 thousand copies of the new testament in greek in uh, latin in aramaic we have more than twenty thousand copies of the new testament okay so what they do is the same process they do for every ancient manuscript they lay out twenty thousand copies of the new testament start the beginning and go all right what do they all say and then you are gathered together and given a percentage for the new testament that percentage is 99.5 percent There is one half of 1% variation in the New Testament amongst all 20,000 of those copies. Now, that one half of 1% amounts to 150,000 variations, which may seem like a lot. But it it is the equivalent of if there are 20,000, roughly 20,000 lines of Scripture in the New Testament, it amounts to basically 40 of those have variations, or, or 40 lines worth of variations, one half of 1%. Now, the vast majority of those one-half of 1% amount to typographical errors, much like you'll see on the next slide. As we see these five lines shown here, first one says, Jesus Christ is the Savior of the world. Next one, Christ Jesus is the Savior of the whole world. Number three, Jesus Christ the Savior of the whole world. As you see... Even with these five manuscripts, the little variations of spelling mistakes, leaving a letter off, um, of the process of, not only through the process of transmission, the scribes who are mere mortals, scribing these things out and transcribing them, not only that, but also errors that have come from, or variations that have come from simply the documents aging over time, blurring and these kinds of things, the vast majority of those 150,000 variants, the vast majority of the one half of 1% of the New Testament are problems just like this. Now, as you you look at these lines, and um, these are just five. Now imagine that 20,000 variations. Do you, could we say with relative certainty that we know what that line is supposed to say? Yeah. Yeah. I don't think too many people are going to go, well, I can't believe in Jesus because that's misspelled. <laughs> the vast majority, in fact, only about 50 variations bear any greater significance than uh, typographical errors like this one. All 50 of those errors or variations, I should say, in your in those early manuscripts, um, of them, none of them have any bearing on any major point of Christian doctrine. And all of them are footnoted in your Bibles. So whenever you read your Bible and there's like an A or a 1 next to a word and you skip down to the bottom of the page and it says some manuscripts say or some manuscripts add or could also be, that is one of those variations being told to you. Nobody's trying to fool you into believing the Bible is 100% without variation. Nobody's trying to do that. 
They are very upfront. Translators are putting in the footnotes as they sit down to make a fresh translation. And some of you may be wondering, well, what about all the different translations that are out there? Okay, good question. It's a very simple question. Throughout time, language changes. The English language changes. And the way in which we use different words, and in fact the very definitions of certain words, change throughout history, right? As, as, as language changes, as culture changes, so the definition and use and context and syntax of words change also. So translations need to be made continually. Now, also within that, even when translations are made at the same time, and so maybe don't reflect uh, different changes in, in the use of language, there are different translation philosophies. There is a range from very literal word-for-word translations. We use the ESV Bible, English Standard Version, which is a very literal translation. Okay, so they will go word by word and make make a translated word of each of the Greek words or each of the Hebrew words into an English equivalent. There are, on the other side, what they will call paraphrase translations. Translations like the message, which are kind of a thought-for-thought translation where the translator will take the idea from a passage, translate that into English in in its idea form, but there isn't a word-for-word connection um, to the original manuscripts. Okay, and so there's different translation theory. I prefer a more literal translation because once you get more of a paraphrase translation, there's more interpretation going on in those translations than there is just plain old translation. Okay, which is why we use a more literal translation. All right? So what I think we can conclude from this evidence is that we can say with really strong certainty that the Bibles that we have today reflect the manuscripts that were written a couple thousand years ago. Think about it. You have 20,000 manuscripts written over the course of maybe a thousand years on three different continents in multiple different languages, and they all match up within 99.5%. That's, that's kind of amazing considering all of the, that transmission process occurred during a time where it was impossible if you were in northern Africa and knew a guy was in western Asia doing a translation that you couldn't just text him and go, hey, what'd you get for John 1-4, right? You just couldn't do that. And so guys in Africa and Asia and Europe are transmitting the Bible, making copies of the Bible, and when they put it together hundreds of years later, they go, oh my gosh, there is 99.5% accuracy. It's kind of incredible. And so if we want to throw out the New Testament as not credible because it is, we don't have original manuscripts, then we literally have to throw out every ancient document. Because the New Testament blows all of them away with this bibliographical test. We'd have to throw out Aristotle and Plato and Herodotus and Caesar and Homer and all of it and go, it's just not trustworthy. Because the New Testament is far more trustworthy than any of them. Okay? Number two. The Bible is full of legend and was written to give the disciples religious influence. The argument goes like this. The words in the Gospels, the stories about Jesus written in the Gospels, are not historically accurate, but actually just legend or fable, allegory, meant to push forward the religious uh, agenda of the early disciples. 
And so it's not really real. It's written to be fable or legend or allegory, to teach good ideas, but certainly not to communicate history. And in fact, those fables and legends were written in such a way as to gain religious influence so that these early disciples could gather followers to themselves and be important people. The first professor of medieval and renaissance English at the University of Cambridge, a man by the name of C.S. Lewis, you might have heard of him, said this. I have been reading poems, romances, vision literature, legends, and myths all my life. I know what they are. I know none of them are like this. Of this gospel text, there are only two possible views. Either this is reportage, in other words, eyewitness account, or else some unknown ancient writer without known predecessors or successors suddenly anticipated the whole technique of modern novelistic realistic narrative. In other words, nobody in first century wrote legend or fable in the literary genre that the Gospels were written. Lewis, who was pretty familiar with ancient medieval Renaissance literature, says, if this is legend, then the writer of these legends has no known predecessor nor successor for several hundred years and stands alone as the only author in ancient literature to write legend like we as moderns write novels. See, now we, we write novels and fiction with, with accuracy to give an air of realism. In fact, Pastor Tim Keller said it this way. In Mark 4, we are told that Jesus was asleep on a cushion in the stern of a boat. In John 21, we are told that Peter was a hundred yards out in the water. And when he saw Jesus on the beach, he then jumped out of the boat. And together they caught 153 fish. None of these details are relevant to the plot or character development at all. If you and I were making up an exciting story about Jesus, we would include such remarks just to fill out the story's air of realism. But that kind of fictional writing was unknown in the first century. The only explanation of why an ancient writer would mention the cushion or the 153 fish is because the details has been, had been retained in the eyewitness's memory. Literarily, the Gospels do not reflect legend or fairy tale style. They reflect the style of history, literarily speaking. Okay. A couple other reasons why this could not be legend or religious propaganda. Number two is the stupidity and disobedience of the disciples. <laughs> the disciples, after Jesus left, were the ones to carry the torch of Christianity into this new era. They were the leaders of the church. And yet they are constantly portrayed as slow, stupid, disobedient, and people who just were in no way capable of leadership. Peter himself, the man whom Jesus said, you are the rock upon whom I will build my church. Peter himself, the man who would lead the church in Jerusalem until his death, was unfaithful, was impetuous, was disobedient, called Jesus Satan, and denied him three times, the last time cursing himself if he weren't actually a follower of Jesus. Now, it's widely assumed through most scholars that the Gospel of Mark that we are teaching here, and we'll pick back up in the fall, was Peter's memories of his time with Jesus told by, told to Mark, written down by Mark. If I were Peter, and maybe I'm just super sinful, 
But if I were Peter, I would have left out the part where I called the Savior of the world Satan. I might, I might have just been like, nah, you know, get that wasn't that important. I was, I was joking. I might have left that part out. I might not have included the part where Jesus said, come walk out on the water, and I freaked out and fell into the water. I might leave that part out. I might leave out the part where I'm like, no, I'm not with Jesus. I hate Jesus. Curse me if I'm with Jesus. Might leave that part out too. But they didn't. In fact, it's the pattern of all of the Bible to include the very raw, very real, and very, at times, dark details of the lives of God's leaders. Because they were telling the true story. Not making up a legend, not making up things that would make them look better to push forward their religious or political agenda. Wouldn't make any sense. If I really want all these people to revere me as their pastor and to follow me, am I going to tell them about the time where I was stupid? No. Number three, the use of women as eyewitness account. Um, the very first people to see the empty tomb after Jesus had been resurrected were two women. This is maybe no big deal to us, but in the first century in Roman culture, a woman's testimony was inadmissible in court. It was worthless. So if someone had come up to you and said, how could you know that Jesus was resurrected from the tomb? And you went, these two ladies told me a first century Roman citizen would be like, so I'm supposed to trust them. So if they were trying to build a case, a false story to push forward their influence and their political clout, naming two women as the primary witnesses to Jesus' resurrection was a really stupid way to do it because no one would have cared. No one would have believed him. No one would have trusted him. Number four, there are multiple references to eyewitnesses throughout the New Testament, specifically in the gospel of Luke chapter one, verses one through four. Luke says, my beloved Theophilus, I endeavored to write an orderly account of the things that have been told about Jesus. So he says, I went and asked the eyewitnesses. I talked to the people that were there to get an account of what actually happened in first Corinthians 15. Paul is making an argument for the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. And in that argument says, Jesus appeared to 500 people at one time, most of whom are still alive. In other words, don't take my word for it. Go talk to Stan. He was there. He saw Jesus ascend into heaven. Just go ask him. He was there. There were far too many eyewitnesses, not only the thousands of people that were following Jesus, but also the innocent bystanders, the Roman citizens, the Roman officials, the Jewish leaders, the random people in the marketplace who saw Jesus, who heard Jesus, who were at the Sermon on the Mount. There were 20,000 people at the Sermon on the Mount. If the story of Jesus multiplying the fish and multiplying the bread was false and that gospel, which all the gospels were written before that generation of people could have passed away, if those gospels start to circulate and a guy reads it and goes, I was at the Sermon on the Mount and I didn't get any fish and I was hungry. He goes, this is false. That's not true. I was there. There were thousands of people still alive who had first-hand eyewitness experience of Jesus when all of those Gospels were circulating. There is no way they could have gained attraction with that many people having been there. What was more likely to happen is they open the Bible and go, yeah, 
I was there for the Sermon on the Mount. I saw the fish. I ate the fish. It was good. Eyewitness account. Thousands and thousands of eyewitnesses. And some specificity in the Gospels. There's one time I believe in the Gospel of Luke where Luke actually names the person who carried Jesus' cross. In fact, he says it's the father of these two guys. I think one of the guys' names Rufus, which just seems weird. There's a guy named Rufus in the Bible. But um, he says the father of Rufus and this guy um, carried Jesus' cross. In other words, if you don't believe me, go ask Rufus. He's your neighbor. He'll tell you. Eyewitnesses, people who were there. Lastly, all of the disciples, save one, died martyrs' deaths for what they wrote in the Gospels. All of them but John. And it wasn't like everyone loved John. He was burned alive and relegated to the island of Patmos to die. He was just tough. (laughs) All of the other disciples died martyrs' deaths. Every single one of them, as they are walking towards their death, could have had the option. If in the back of their minds they're going, what I wrote is a lie, what I've been teaching is a lie, Jesus was just a dude, he sinned all the time, and we stole his body. As, he, as Peter is walking to the cross to be crucified upside down, you'd think at some point Jesus, Peter would go, why would I die when I know this isn't true? Why would I die for something I know I made up? Considering all of them died in poverty, with no religious clout, and when there were only maybe a few thousand people in the church scattered across the Middle East. They wouldn't do that. They died martyrs' deaths because they believed what they wrote was true. And then this was an honest telling of the story of Jesus. Number three. The books of the Bible themselves were chosen hundreds of years after Jesus died and were chosen to gain power. This has been a theory popularized by such heavily researched and well thought out scholarly works such as the Da Vinci Code, (laughs) which has propagated this idea in a way that is really unprecedented. The Da Vinci Code is a novel, somewhat poorly written, interesting, but with horrible scholarship which has been widely recognized by anybody with a credible PhD. In fact, I, I walked into Powell's Bookstore, which is one of the biggest, most liberal bookstores in the whole world. It's in Portland, Oregon. It's this fantastic bookstore. And I walked in, and I saw that they had an article, I believe from the New York Times, posted right above the stack of Da Vinci Code books. And so I thought, oh, this would be interesting. And I read the article, and the article was basically saying, anybody who believes this stuff is a moron. That's a paraphrase. (laughs) Basically saying there is no scholarship, there is no research, none of this is backed up, this is a story, take it as a story. But somehow, the information taught in that fictional book has been widely accepted as historical proof. It's not. It's just not. Okay. The argument goes, there are a lot of Gospels, and um, in the year around 400, just after the um, Council of Nicaea was, I believe, in 396, um, in at that council and subsequent councils, the church leaders at that time decided to pick these four Gospels because it agreed with their agenda, their political ideology, and they thought if we pick these four and eliminate these others, then we can gain political power. 
And so they left out the Gospel of Judas, the Gospel of Thomas, the Gospel of Mary, and many other so-called Gnostic Gospels that came much later. In fact, the Gospel of Thomas is the earliest of the Gnostic Gospels. It was written in A.D. 175. At least 75 years after Thomas was dead. And after all the eyewitnesses were dead, after all the disciples were dead, and long dead, and some of their children were dead, and in 175 A.D., the Gospel of Thomas was written, and that's the first of the Gnostic Gospels. Okay. Um, Adam Gopnik from The New Yorker wrote this, said the Gnostic Gospels were written so late that they no more challenged the basis of the church's faith than the discovery of a document from the 19th century written in Ohio and defending King George would be a challenge to the basis of American democracy. In other words, if some dude in Ohio wrote about how cool King George is and that was supposed to ruin our democracy, that's the equivalent of the Gnostic Gospels affecting Christian doctrine. This is the guy who writes for the New Yorker. Somehow, these so-called secret Gospels... I'll never forget the first time I was watching something on the Discovery Channel about these secret Gospels that had been suppressed by by the Roman Catholic Church for so long, and it was talking about the Gospel of Judas, and I thought, oh my gosh, this secret, oppressed, oh my... Went on the went on the internet, typed in Gospel of Judas, up came the Gospel of Judas. And I thought, wow, they're doing a crappy job making this a secret. <laughs> they simply hold no weight. They were written in the 2nd and 3rd centuries, long after the eyewitnesses were dead, long after the disciples were dead. In fact, as early as A.D. 160, an early church father by the name of Irenaeus of Lyons wrote down, and we have copies of this, wrote down that there are four Gospels widely accepted by the Christian church, Gospel of Matthew, Gospel of Mark, Gospel of Luke, Gospel of John. In fact, they traveled in the early years as what they called the Gospel or the fourfold Gospel, that they were not each Gospels, that they were together thought it to be one gospel, one telling from four perspectives of the gospel of Jesus Christ, A.D. 160. Which may seem, you may be thinking, wow, A.D. 160, that's a hundred years after the first gospel was written. But you have to keep in mind the era. You have to keep in mind that these were Christian churches scattered over hundreds of miles with no mass communication. Mass communication was the fastest camel rider. Okay, And so communication between these cities that are hundred miles away, hundreds of miles away on separate continents, continents was very slow. And so the process of this gospel was written in North Africa, this gospel was written in West Asia, this gospel was written in Israel. And to be able to communicate those to all the different churches was a very slow and arduous process. To be honest, the fact that as early as 160 there was a fourfold gospel to recognize is somewhat remarkable given the the methods of communication and their ability to communicate quickly. It is really remarkable how quickly those four Gospels were self-identified as the truth about Jesus. By AD, by, uh, AD 100, all 27 books of the New Testament were in circulation, and all but Hebrews, Second Peter, James, Second, Third John, Revelation were universally accepted. And so here's what's going on. By AD 100, all 27 of these books are being circulated around um, to all the churches, and the bulk of them have already been universally accepted. And there were some, some of the smaller books um, that were still kind of fringy. And here's what would happen is um, a book like a... Second or third John would be written in one part of the world, would be widely accepted in that region, and then would travel to the next region, and they would kind of take a while for it to go, oh, here's a new book, this is 
canon. And so it would take time, just naturally take time as it traveled. And so some of the later books to be written were also the later books to be accepted. But very, very, very early on, by historical standards, the canon was set. And later, uh, uh, Nicene uh, councils and, and subsequent councils simply were rubber stamping what had been accepted and has been uh, what had been named in lists for the previous 100 to 200 years that we now have, those original early lists that were just rubber stamped at the end of the 4th century. Okay. And when you want to get into content and talk about the Gnostic Gospels compared to the canonical Gospels, and if you really want to make the argument that the canonical Gospels were chosen to gain political power, it really wouldn't make any sense because it's in fact the Gnostic Gospels that are a better reflection of Roman and Greek culture. They, they teach a duality in the universe between flesh and spirit and basically say the flesh is evil or anything material is evil and the spiritual is inherently good, which was a central accepted tenet in Roman and Greek culture. And so if you were ever going to pick gospels that would kind of be able to harmonize um, the philosophies of Roman and Greek culture with the gospel, you'd pick the the Gnostic Gospels, not the canonical Gospels that teach of a God that is spiritual taking on flesh. That would be anathema to a, a dualistic Gnostic culture. Wouldn't make any sense. Number four. The Bible was written by mere men who had no intention of writing sacred scripture. So the argument goes like this. These guys were just writing books. They're writing letters to churches. Paul woke up one morning and said, hey, I got friends in Ephesus. I'll write a letter to the church in Ephesus. Oh, I need to write to Titus. I need to write to Timothy. John wrote to his uh, early followers. Peter would write to his followers. And they're just writing letters. They had no intention, no idea that 2,000 years later in Tempe, Arizona, we'd be opening their words and teaching them as the authoritative command of God. This is a good argument, except for the Bible. Second Peter 3.14, Peter says, Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. See what Peter just did? He just called Paul's writing scripture and made it equal to the Old Testament scriptures and said, Paul's writing is tough to understand sometimes and ignorant, selfish, sinful people are going to kind of twist it and try to manipulate it just like they do the other scriptures. Peter, who I think could be described as a rival of Paul's, has just written saying Paul's writing is scripture. Paul himself says in 1 Corinthians 14, 37, if anyone thinks that he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. Paul himself acknowledging in writing what he is writing to the people in Corinth is a command from God. Paul knowing that he writes the commands of God. In 1 Corinthians 7, Paul actually differentiates in one part where he goes, I don't have a word from the Lord on this. This is my wisdom. And he actually goes, but I'm a pretty spiritual guy, so it's probably good. And uh, he 
he writes it, and then later on in that same passage goes, now this I do have from the Lord, do this. This is a command from God. This I don't have clear teaching. Paul is clearly aware that what he writes is authoritative teaching from God. And so where he doesn't have clear teaching, he feels the weight of the responsibility enough to go, hey, I want to be honest here. I could easily just keep writing... And you would just assume that I'm writing the command of God, but I want to be honest and go, this isn't, I I don't have a clear understanding, this is just for me. Paul bears that weight. So it's kind of hard to say that Paul was writing not knowing that he was giving the command of the Lord when he wrote saying, I'm giving the command of the Lord. Number five. The Bible's message is outdated morally and culturally. It is oppressive to women, slaves, and those with minority lifestyles. This might be the most common objection to the Bible that I hear. Okay. Argument goes like this. I cannot accept the Bible because of what it teaches about slavery or about women or about this minority lifestyle. I I cannot accept the whole Bible because this one part seems outdated, outmoded, socially regressive, or oppressive. For instance, slavery, Ephesians 6, 5 says, Slaves, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing whatever good anyone does, this you will receive back from the Lord, whether he is slave or free. Is this complicit approval of slavery? It would be easy for us, and many of us make the very bad decision to read this passage and go, the Bible approves of the kind of slavery that we had in America for so long. A heinous, oppressive, horrible, dark, sinful thing that happened in our country, and the Bible approves of it. This would be one example. This would be a perfect example of the first problem that, that comes of this. One is just... Just a misunderstanding of what the Bible's teaching. And we make assumptions about what it's saying that are just ignorant because we haven't done the work that it takes. And to be honest, the pretty simple work that it takes to figure out exactly what the Bible is saying. Tim Keller said this. This is a classic case of ignoring the cultural and historical distance between us and the writer and the readers of the original text. In the first century Roman Empire, when the New Testament was written, there was not a great difference between slaves and the average free person. Slaves were not distinguishable from others, distinguishable from others by race, speech, or clothing. They looked and lived like most everyone else and were not segregated from the rest of society in any way. From a financial viewpoint, slaves made the same wages as free laborers and therefore were not usually poor. Also, slaves could accrue enough personal capital to buy themselves out. Most important of all, very few slaves were slaves for life. Most could reasonably hope to be manumitted within 10 or 15 years or by their late 30s at the least. So to read Ephesians 6, 5 through 8 and go, see, see, the Bible is for slavery. And so all that horrible stuff that happened in our country, the Bible approves of. And so I reject it is just flat out historical ignorance which I see often. 
people who are not willing to take the 30 or so seconds to read a commentary, to read a history book about what slavery was in first, test, in, in first century New Testament times, where it was much more like simply someone who worked with a long-term contract with a company than it was like slavery in our country. It's just ignorance. And so they say, I cannot accept the Bible. The Bible's false. The Bible's wrong because of this. And when this is based on just flat-out ignorance, is is a real crime. Second thing that happens in, in this, and, and this, this is probably even more important, is that when we come to Scripture, we come to it with a 21st century Western philosophy, post-Enlightenment, liberal American perspective. People who would look at the scriptures and go, they, the scriptures are oppressive to women. Do so with the 21st century, post-enlightenment, Western philosophical, liberal American point of view. And what they do is make universal statements about the wrongness or the regressiveness or the oppressiveness of Scripture based on their cultural and temporal biases. Because reality is, 100 years ago, nobody had a problem with those passages. And what we are saying is, today, in 2009, we have reached the intellectual apex of humanity. And so anything that doesn't live up to what our culture has deemed appropriate is oppressive and regressive. Not only that, but it's also geographically arrogant in that if you went to the Middle East and showed those same passages to someone from a traditional culture, they would struggle with the Bible's description of women because it was unbearably liberal today. In most traditional cultures, the Bible's elevation of the role of women, its, its valuing of women would be unacceptable in traditional cultures today. So when we make an argument that the Bible is regressive in its teaching on social and moral issues, we have to recognize that we do so from a particular bias and that it is not a universal argument that can be universally applied to Scripture and go, in a vacuum, in this intellectual vacuum, this can be proven that this is regressive. I mean, the very term itself, regressive, is a subjective term. And it is incredibly arrogant to come to the Scripture and go, this Scripture is wrong and outdated and regressive and oppressive because I, as a 21st century American, think it's so. Don't even worry about the fact that a 21st century Iraqi would completely disagree with me. I am right. 21st century America is the apex of intellectualism. probably would take about 45 seconds on the television to figure out that that's not true. <laughs> but what I think another danger is for us is that in 100 years, people will look back on us and go, oh, those foolish 21st century Americans. Us 22nd century Americans have really got it figured out. Do you ever wonder what things other people down the road will laugh at us about? Yeah. Yeah, me too. I wonder all the time what they'll laugh at you about. <laughs> Tim Keller sums up with this. He says, To stay away from Christianity because part of the Bible's teaching is offensive to you 
assumes that if there is a God, he wouldn't have any views that upset you. Let that sink in for a minute. What you're saying is that if there is a God, he wouldn't dare disagree with you. Clearly, if there is a God in the universe, he would believe all the same things I believe. If he's a real God, clearly he couldn't disagree with any of my positions socially, morally, or politically. Which is just incredibly arrogant to say. Incredibly arrogant to think that if there is a God in the universe, that that God wouldn't have the right to be right. And that you couldn't possibly be wrong. So, at the end of the day, the Bible is full of things that we struggle with for one reason or another. The Bible is full of cultural things and moral things and social things that we can argue about and struggle with. But at the end of the day, the Bible is about one thing. All of the scriptures from the beginning of Genesis to the end of Revelation speak of one thing, and that is the life, death, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. They speak primarily of that one thing. There is no greater moment in the history of the Bible, in the arc of its story. It is the climax. It is the crescendo of the story. And so what I would ask of you this evening is simply that you would figure out the main point first and just consider that if Jesus truly was who he says he was, if he really is the son of God, if he really is the way, the truth, and the life that you might consider that God might be right about some things and you might be wrong. Just consider it. That we have to figure out what the main point of the scriptures are and know if we believe that Jesus is God and then let the secondary stuff fall in afterwards. I hope that tonight um, I have accomplished some, some great things, but one thing I know that I have not accomplished because I have not tried And that is to prove to you that the Bible, the implications of the Bible, the implications of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ are true. I simply cannot and would not want to try to get up and prove to you in some logical format that Jesus' death and resurrection accomplished the forgiveness of sins for all who believe. That is not a provable point. It is not the desire of the Bible, nor is it the desire of God to prove to you in a logical format that Jesus Christ's death and resurrection accomplished the forgiveness of sins and one day the restoration of all creation. In fact, Abraham Lincoln said it this way, I am profitably engaged in reading the Bible. Take all of this book that you can by reason and the balance by faith, and you will live and die a better man. It is the best book which God has given to man. The Bible intends to walk us through very logically, in a very trustworthy fashion. God has has given us brains for a reason, to use them, to think through the proofs for Scripture that have been presented to you this evening. God has given you a brain to walk you to a certain point. But that point is not salvation. 
that point is one step short of a relationship with God. That final step must be taken by faith. Our faith is not a blind faith. It is not an unreasonable faith. It is not a faith that forces you to turn a blind eye to logic and proof. But it is a faith nonetheless. It is a faith founded on fact. But as Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 1, is that it pleased God to tell the story in such a way that it takes that step of faith for us to finalize our relationship with God. Let's pray. Jesus, first and foremost, we thank you for your life. Lord, that you willingly, out of love, chose to leave the comforts of heaven where you were praised and worshipped day and night by a multitude of angels, where you sat at the right hand of the Father in all eternity. And you willingly chose to let all of that go to become a man to live, to die, to be raised again. And for that sacrifice you made to accomplish the redemption that none of us deserve. Lord, I thank you that you sent the Holy Spirit to empower the writers of Scripture, to remind them of the days past, their experience with you, the miracles and the teaching, the interactions with the poor, the interactions with the powerful. Lord, I thank you that you have preserved them throughout the centuries for us. And I thank you, Lord, that you have given us the gift of your word to build our faith, to describe you, to understand the world around us. I pray, God, that our trust, our belief, our faith, dependence upon the Scriptures would be increased tonight. As we have seen, both logically, systematically, Lord, that Your Word is dependable and trustworthy. God, I pray that our faith would be increased. I pray, God, that You would do what I cannot do and that You would remove the obstacles that are in the way of many. They do not trust your scripture for a multitude of reasons. God, I pray that um, that you would multiply my words tonight. Multiply their impact in the lives of those here in this room. We love you and we praise you in your name. Amen. Um, now.